Thank you so much for the uh, invitation and opportunity to be with you here um, in Newcastle uh, this evening. This is the second time in my life I've been in Newcastle. I was here about 20 years ago. Um, it brings back horrific memories because I was uh, uh, at the wheel of a, a single-decker coach with a coachload of campers that we had up in Berwick-upon-Tweed trying to, to get to the metro centre for a day's shopping. Uh, and the driver, yours truly, managed to get hopelessly lost uh, weaving backwards and forwards across the bridges over the Tyne. Um, I was so thankful that uh, I had a, a good navigator to get me from the airport in this evening. Uh, whenever my son heard that I was coming up to Newcastle, he said, will, will Alan Shearer be in the congregation to hear you? <laughs> and I said, well, if he is, I'll make sure I get his, his autograph uh, to bring home. But uh, I don't see him out there. Um, it, it is a, a great pleasure and, and joy for me to be here, because, not least because I have a tremendous admiration for the, the work of the Christian Institute. I think it's doing a tremendous job, and, and it's, it's out there in the cut and thrust um, of um, the world that we live in, bringing the, the full force of the Christian message, not just in the preaching of the gospel, um, but showing the relevance of the truth of Scripture um, to a world that is rapidly destroying itself. And if we are going to be salt and light, um, as Christ commands us to be, then it means getting our sleeves rolled up, getting our hands dirty, and getting into the thick um, of hard headed debate um, with those who are trying to under, undermine the very values and principles that have upheld this nation of ours uh, and the Western world for such a long time. And it thrilled me no end uh, whenever George rang me and told me that um, you were doing this lecture series uh, this autumn, um, because um, it's hard to emphasize too strongly um, the importance of the theme of these lectures uh, that you've been pursuing over these past five weeks uh, in the contemporary context in which we find ourselves living today, not least upon the way in which we bring the message of the Bible to bear upon our present generation. This theme provides us with a, a strand of biblical teaching which perhaps more than any other at this particular point in time has a direct bearing upon the way that we understand ourselves both as a human race at large and also how we understand as individuals in particular. And in a very real way, it provides us with a, a penetrating point of contact for the gospel. One of the big struggles that we have as Christians who, who seek to communicate the, the gospel to a world that is hostile to God is finding some point of contact, some entry point where we can show that the message that we have speaks not just to those who are in the Christian community, but it's a message that's for the world. And it's a message that speaks to the mind and to the heart of every human individual around us. The reason why I say that, that it provides us with a, a special point of contact for the gospel in our generation, is the fact that for almost a century and a half, um, the effect of, of evolutionary and existentialist indoctrination has led to our becoming a generation of virtual atheists. That even though people may not openly deny the existence of God and say there is no God in stark terms, we belong to a generation that lives as though God did not exist. And certainly as though God, if he does exist, does not matter and need not be taken seriously. We have opted for a self-understanding that self-consciously relates us 
downwards to the animal kingdom rather than relates us upwards to the God whose image we bear. And nowhere is that illustrated more vividly than the recent BBC series Ape Man, which even in by the um, estimation of the secular press um, uh, exposed that as, a, as an exercise in archaeological and scientific fantasizing rather than serious deliberation and investigation into our human identity. And it descended into a, a celebration of human degradation to talk about our race with all its God-given dignity as being nothing but a race of ape men is an insult to what we are as human beings. And of course, the tragedy of this kind of mass indoctrination that is if you tell people for long enough that their closest relatives are monkeys, then it's no surprise if they begin to embrace the morals of monkeys and the mindset of monkeys and behave as if they were monkeys in the way that we treat each other and the way that we regard ourselves. Worse than that, it ultimately strips us of any sense of meaning or purpose in life. It robs us of any hope for the future or any concept of a life in the world to come. That we are suffering in the present day the tragic and the fearful consequences of being overwhelmed by a false understanding of science and a false philosophy that has driven us further and further away from God and from our spiritual roots in God. The issue at stake then, as we explore this subject together, is an issue of enormous significance. And when we begin to, to tease out the, the threads of, of a God-given self-understanding of our humanity as it's set out in the Bible. It can hardly be better summarized, I think, than in the title of a book written by Richard Pratt, um, uh, uh, a professor from Reform Seminary in uh, Orlando, uh, Florida, um, who's, who, who wrote on this theme, and he entitled this book, Designed for Dignity. And, and one can hardly think of a, of a lovelier way to speak about human worth and human value than to say that we have been designed as human beings for dignity and not for degradation. It's to the climax of this theme then that we come in this evening's lecture trying to draw to um, a head all that you've been studying over these past four weeks. As George reminded us, um, so far you've covered four key areas. What it means for man to be made in God's image, how that affects his relationship to the world on the one hand, and how it, relates, how it affects the relationship between the sexes on the other hand, but how those roles and responsibilities that were given by God have been shattered by our fall into sin as a race and the aftermath of that fall in the entire sweep of human history. As we draw this sequence of studies to a close then this evening, we, we end on the most positive of notes what it means to be made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here lies the heart of the Christian gospel. And here we find the only true and lasting hope for a fallen world. I've been given the icing on the cake this evening. I've been given the most thrilling uh, dimension of this whole set of studies 
to bring us to the very climax of what God has promised, what God has done, and what God freely offers to those who will hear what he says in the good news of Jesus Christ and what he gives to those who embrace him by faith. You see, the newness of which the title speaks finds its focus in the Christ in whom it is found. I want us therefore to look at three dimensions of that new life that Jesus Christ alone uniquely is able to give us. I want to see Christ as the pattern of our new humanity. I want us to see Christ as the source of our new humanity. And finally, Christ as the goal of our new humanity. Let's look first of all then at, the, at Christ as the pattern of the new humanity. It would be a tremendous tragedy if we were to follow the teaching of the Bible on the doctrine of man so far, but go no further. Although you have covered true biblical teaching in the first four lectures in this series, if you stopped short at lecture four and didn't end up in lecture five, then you would be left only with insight into a broken humanity. Something that was made for wonderful purpose, but something which has been shattered and broken. Like, it would be like finding the pieces of a, um, a priceless vase shattered all over the floor. You'd come in, you would see the pieces, and you would recognize enough to say, well, here is something that, that was, was meant to be beautiful, was meant to be a work of art, something of tremendous value, but it's in, in pieces, it's destroyed. And you do not know how to repair it, how to put it back together again. For the Bible not only tells us of one who has the power to repair a broken humanity, but also of one who is himself the pattern to which it will be conformed. Jesus comes there not as one who says, I am able to save, but I am the one who shows and who embodies what your salvation will ultimately lead to. It's a truth which gives the gospel that we preach the sharpest of focus, and it prevents us from sliding into the mystical notions which are becoming more and more prevalent of what salvation is all about. Such misguided ideas about redemption are, are obviously a problem in our day, uh, because on the one hand, we, we are uh, deeply affected by the New Age mysticism that is becoming more popular in the world around us. But we're also being affected increasingly by the spin-offs of New Age mysticism in the church, uh, not least the Celtic spirituality that's becoming so popular in many of the new churches, uh, which uh, embraces... Uh, 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 a, a mystical idea of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, and the focus has shifted away from a Christ-centered gospel to an experience-orientated message. It was a problem not just in our day, it was a problem also in the later part of the New Testament period because those days saw the beginning of a new movement which came to be known as Gnosticism, uh, but in many ways it was a first-century version of New Ageism. It seriously distorted the gospel which had been preached by the apostles 
and which had been used for the establishment of the New Testament church. And it was something which, at least in part, uh, was rearing its head in the churches around Colossae, and it was something that Paul was addressing as he wrote to the Colossians. And as Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he was seeking to recover the heart and the substance of the gospel. And he does so, not surprisingly, by refocusing the minds of these people upon the Lord Jesus Christ who had been preached to them all those years ago. And so we find that Colossians provides us with one of the most profound insights into the nature of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the Bible. But we cannot be struck by the way in which Paul introduces Jesus Christ in Colossians 1 and verse 15, because he says there, if you want to turn to Colossians 1:15, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. The word that he uses for image there carries the idea of, both, of something which both reveals and represents revelation and representation. And theologians rightly tell us that at one level this points to what Jesus was in his pre-incarnate state as the eternal son of God. That in, that in that relationship that has always existed between the first and second persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, what Jesus was as son was someone who eternally um, represented and eternally revealed the Father. And that's certainly true to acknowledge that and to say that. But it would be wrong to limit our understanding of Paul's use of image merely to that because it cannot be divorced from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was not simply speaking about what Jesus was in his pre-eternal glory, pre-incarnate glory but what he was when he took human flesh and entered our world. The very expression, the very form of words that Paul uses in this verse um, carries an unmistakable echo of what's said back in Genesis 1.27 about the creation of man in the first place and the fact that man is said to be made in the image of God. And that speaks not only of what Adam was in himself, but also of what man, what Adam was in his relationship to the created order around him. And you've covered some of that ground already. If I can put it this way, if Adam is the key to understanding the fallen creation, as we look at Adam made in the image of God, and Adam falling into sin in Genesis chapter 3, then Jesus Christ is the key to understanding God's new creation. As Paul uses this language, he's, he's um, making a connection with Genesis, and, and he is saying, as he says elsewhere, that if Adam is the key to understanding the state of our fallen world, then Jesus Christ is the key to understanding the new world order that is found in God's redemptive purpose. In the same way as the images of Trotsky, Marx and Lenin, which were dotted around the old communist empire of the uh, greater part of the last century, as those statues, as those pictures, as those images were uh, a key element of understanding the communist state. 
So Jesus Christ. As the image of God. Is the key to understanding. God's new creation. God's new world order. Again it's borne out by Paul's emphasis. Elsewhere upon Christ being the second man. And the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15. 44 through 49. Let's, let's try and unpack this a little bit. This, this, this vital truth about Jesus can be broken down into three component parts, all of which have a bearing upon how our true humanity is recovered in God's redemption. As we think of what it means for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God, it's telling us that he is God's perfect revelation, he is God's perfect representative and he is God's perfect ruler. So we think of Jesus then as the, the um, pattern of God's new humanity. Let's see it in these terms. God's perfect revelation, perfect representative, and perfect ruler. Great problem for the people of Colossae, as much as for people throughout the world and throughout history, is how do we know God? Not least because, as Paul so clearly states, God is invisible. Paul's answer is simple. We know God through Jesus. We know God through Jesus. As we ask the question, how do we know who God is? How do we know what God is like? How do we know what God, how God functions? The answer is simple. We look to Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the living embodiment of all that God is. comes out again in chapter 1, verse 19. Um, of, of Colossians um, there, uh, there the apostle tells us that uh, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and again over the, the page in, in Colossians chapter 2 and, and the, the ninth verse um, there it says for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form Jesus is the living embodiment of all that God is. And it picks up, of course, on Jesus' own comment as he speaks to the disciples. In, in uh, John chapter 14, around the, the table of the Last Supper, um, um, he has asked, um, he has said, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. How does Jesus answer? He that has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Again, to use John's unique description of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is God's word made flesh. He is the incarnation of the eternal word of God. And that's an incredible truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, that what he is is the perfect revelation of God. And perhaps it's seen nowhere more dramatically than whenever Jesus Christ, as a scrap of torn and broken humanity, is pinned to a Roman cross and dies upon that Roman cross. The Roman centurion in charge of the execution party looks at him, taking his dying breath, and says, Surely this man was the Son of God. That even through the scars and the blood and the gore of that, th of that death, he saw the revelation of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not only the perfect revelation 
of God. He is also the perfect revelation of man. Because what we have in Jesus Christ for the first time since the fall of man at the beginning of time is a fleeting glimpse of a perfect human being. For that moment of history on the face of this fallen earth as we look at Jesus Christ for those who lived contemporaneously with him who knew him, who saw him for Mary and Joseph who reared him, for his brothers and sisters who lived with him, for his disciples who followed, for the crowds who were there. What they saw in him was that fleeting glimpse of a perfect human being. And as you and I look at Jesus Christ through the pages of Holy Scripture, what do we see? We see a revelation of true humanity. He is the perfect revelation of God, but he is the perfect revelation of what it means to be human as well. It's as though our humanity is like a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle that has been broken and scattered all over the, of the floor, and there is no lid to look at to see what it's meant to be like. But when Jesus Christ appeared and walked on this earth, he was that lid. He was that picture that shows us what we were meant to be and how God intended us to function. In essence then, Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of man as he is meant to be, man in relationship with God. There's a lecture in itself, isn't there, to begin to unpack that and to explore it in all its fullness. But suffice it to say that Jesus Christ is God's perfect revelation. But he is also God's perfect representative. Being image of God not only has a revelatory function, but it also has a representative function as well. For Adam in the Garden of Eden, he did not just live and act out of his own private and personal interests. He functioned as the head and representative of his wife in that first marriage relationship, but ultimately of the entire human race. That he was there, acting not merely on his own personal behalf, but he was acting on behalf of the race that would descend from him. And so Paul, in light of that, is able to say that every human being who has ever lived or whoever will live on the face of this earth, suffers the consequences, not merely of their own personal rebellion and their own personal folly, but they suffer ultimately the consequences of Adam's sin. And so if you turn back to Romans, um, you, you have it very clearly in Romans chapter um, 5. Um, there, Romans 5 and, and verse 12. Um, Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. And so he goes on from there. Again, the same truth is brought out in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Um, we are being reminded by the apostle that the problems that we experience throughout human history can be traced back to the problems that Adam brought through his own personal sin and rebellion against God because he was acting on behalf of the race. 
Theologians describe it in terms of federal headship. Federal headship. One acting in the interests of, on behalf of, the many. And so as we trace the power, the effect, the consequences of sin back to their roots, we end up not with ourselves and the first sin that we committed, but we trace it back ultimately to Adam and to the sin that he committed and the effect that had upon the whole human race and ultimately upon the cosmos itself. But the fascinating thing is this, that the gospel meets the enormity of that problem of sin on the same footing. Because just as the many suffer on account of the disobedience of the one, so the many will be blessed on account of the obedience of another. As in Adam all have sinned and fallen, so in Christ shall we be made alive. The federal headship of Jesus Christ is God's perfect provision, God's perfect antidote for the federal headship of our forefather, Adam. It is in Christ that God provides the one who is the head and the representative of what will one day be a perfect race. Christ is also God's perfect ruler. He reveals, he represents, but he also rules. It's worth noting, even in passing, one other element of what it means for Jesus Christ to be God's true and perfect image bearer. It's tied in with the fact that the image of God is bound up with the mediated rule of God in this world. You've covered that ground already, I think, with John Mackay. Um, In the ancient world, kings would set up images in vassal states, states that they conquered, as a symbol of their personal reign over those conquered people. That even though those kings may never personally set foot in those lands to implement their rule, the images of themselves that they would set up would represent their rule and their dominion over them. Not unlike those images in communist states that we spoke of a few moments ago, that the images of Lenin and Trotsky and Marx were there to remind those, those people in those lands who it was that was ruling over them and whose ideologies were governing their lives. And so when Jesus Christ appears in this world, even in his infancy, he is acknowledged as a king, Matthew 2, 1 to 12. When he commences his public ministry, Mark tells us, what are the first words that he speaks? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has come. Because the king has entered this world and begun his reign. And so whenever a person is converted and becomes a Christian, it means that they are included in the kingdom of Christ. They are brought back under his saving, sovereign rule. But it also means that they are restored to their God-given function as human beings who share in Christ's rule over his cosmos. And Paul speaks about that in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, that we actually are brought into the realm of sharing in Christ's rule over the world that he has made. If we draw these threads together then, 
um, the practical implication of, of all of this is spelled out by Paul when he says in Romans 6 verse 17, Thanks be to God you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were committed. And, and, and he, is, he is speaking about um, a pattern to which we are conformed. Um, we're talking about Jesus Christ as the pattern of the new humanity. And what Paul is speaking about in Romans 6.17 is, is something that isn't easily translated into the English, but it's a, it's a lovely picture which can be unpacked in the English language. That It's as though Paul is speaking about a, a mould, a mould into which molten metal is poured. And as it begins to cool and solidify, what was molten and amorphous, shapeless, takes on the shape and contours of the thing into which it's been poured, so that when the mould is taken away, its imprint remains. You've become obedient from the heart, he tells those Roman Christians, to that form of teaching to which you are committed. What is the form of biblical teaching? What is the shape of biblical teaching? What is the face of biblical teaching? It's the face of Jesus Christ. It's the image of Jesus Christ. It's likeness to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the pattern of our new humanity. Or again, you see it in what Paul says to the Galatians, that that church that had caused him so much heartache. And and he says, speaks of his ministry in terms of laboring as in the pains of childbirth among you until, until what? Until Christ be formed in you. What a goal. What an objective. Jesus Christ is the pattern of that true humanity to which we are being conformed in the ongoing process of our salvation. And that provides, I think, a useful stepping stone to move on to the next dimension of what it means to be renewed in the image of God in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not only the pattern of the new humanity, he is also the source of the new humanity. The key to understanding everything wrapped up in being a Christian is found in what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. Remember Sinclair Ferguson brought out a book many years ago, I think it was the second book he ever published, and it was entitled Grow in Grace. And on the first few pages, he sets out the thesis of the book, what he's trying to get at. He says, if you want to understand yourself as a Christian, you need to understand Jesus Christ. And, and, and it took me several years for the penny to drop. It shows how, how thick this Irishman is. But, it, but it, it suddenly dawned upon me that what he was talking about was union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's only whenever we begin to understand that a Christian is somebody who has been married to Christ who is spiritually one flesh with Christ, that to understand him is to understand ourselves and what we have become in him. All that we are depends upon our being inseparably related to him. And it's borne out by the frequent use of the smallest of words in the New Testament that are simply pregnant with meaning. The fact that Paul loves to speak again and again about being in Christ, about being with Christ, about something happening through Christ, that he is speaking again and again about being united to Christ. And the essence of it is captured in that well-known statement 
of Paul to the Corinthians when he says, quite simply, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, new creation. The versions are wrong whenever they say he or she is a new creation. It simply says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, new creation. It's not simply what they have become personally in themselves as new creatures in Christ, but they have become incorporated into something infinitely bigger than what they are as individuals or even what they are as a sum of individuals. That we are in Christ incorporated into the new creation in all its magnitude and all its glory and splendor. And a very swift survey of the references will show this to be the case. Christ is the key to our redeemed and our reconstructed humanity, both individually and corporately. We see it, first of all, in the fact that our new humanity finds its redemption in Christ. That is, our deliverance comes from outside ourselves, from outside our race, and from outside our world. It comes through Jesus Christ, the one God sent, the one who came from above, The one who entered our world from out there. Why? In order to save. Jesus didn't come into the world to patch us up. To put on a few spiritual band-aids here or there. He came to save us. To deliver us. To rescue us. From our sins. How is our redemption unpacked? Well, five of the main Um, elements are we are chosen in Christ, we are justified by Christ, we are adopted in Christ, we are sanctified through Christ, we are glorified with Christ. There is a five-point summary of what salvation means. We are chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he chose us in him. The doctrine of election cannot be understood in isolation from Jesus Christ. Far too often that doctrine has become distorted into an elitist self-understanding of the church or for those who embrace a particular set of doctrines. Instead, it should have precisely the opposite effect. The doctrine of election should bring us to our knees before God and say, Why me? Why us? Far from creating an elitist group of Christians, it should humble us to the very dust in the presence of God and fill us with humility and with a deeper love for the Lord Jesus Christ because all that we are as his chosen people is not about us, it's about him. We are chosen in Christ. We are justified by Christ. Therefore, being justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Our forgiveness, our acceptance as being righteous in God's sight is entirely on Christ's account and on the basis of Christ's merits and not our own. It's frightening, I think, to see how little understood and how little appreciated is this vital gospel truth today. There are far too many Christians who are falling into the Galatian heresy who having begun the Christian life by looking to Jesus for acceptance with God, they try to continue the Christian life by looking to themselves and their personal performance for acceptance with God. 
And yet Paul says again and again, till he's blue in the face, the only reason we can be forgiven and accepted by God at any point on our Christian pilgrimage is by virtue of Jesus Christ and his justifying grace. We are adopted in Christ. We cannot think of the amazing truth of justification without at the same time thinking of the even more amazing truth of adoption. And yet, sadly, it's also neglected in far too many of our churches and far too many of our, of our books these days that we have simply overlooked this vital element of gospel teaching. That the transaction of salvation does not merely take us into the courtroom and stand us in the presence of the judge of all the earth upon the, on the, upon the bench. And he looks upon us and he sees us as guilty sinners. But he sees us then in fellowship with Jesus Christ and he says, for his sake I will forgive you. I will acquit you. I will accept you as righteous in my sight. It doesn't stop there. Because the judge takes off his gown and he steps down from the bench and he comes and he puts his arm around you in the dock and he says, come home with me. I will take you into my family as my son or my daughter and you will be my very own. That is grace. And that comes out again in our, the introduction to the, to the Ephesian letter. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. We are sanctified through Christ. I think that's seen perhaps most remarkably in Paul's greeting at the start of the letter to the Corinthians of all churches that he could have used these, this, this greeting to. He says to the Corinthian church, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Who were these people? These were people who were guilty of factions, of immorality, of heresy. Out of all the New Testament churches, that was the one church that would not be admitted to any of our evangelical fellowships in today's world. And yet Paul says, you are saints. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's a reference to what John Murray described as definitive sanctification. That we have a holy standing in the sight of a holy God, not because we are personally pure, but because we are in Christ. And we are regarded and accepted as holy people because of Christ in the sight of a holy God. And then we are glorified with Christ. In him we were also chosen that we might be for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. The whole compass of our redemption from beginning to end is bound up uniquely and exclusively with Jesus Christ. So much so that something of the perfect glory of his future shines through into the imperfect present of our lives. That we can talk today in some limited fashion about being glorified with Christ so that something of the future intrudes into the present and the aura of heaven itself is the characteristic of those who are God's children and Christ's people. On this earth, the bottom line in practical terms is that we must always, the gospel always makes us look away from self and away to Jesus Christ for the hope and certainty of our salvation because he is the hope of our redemption. 
the new humanity finds its redemption in Christ, but it also finds it is, it is reconstructed in Christ. Christ not only functions as Savior and Redeemer through what he imputes to us by his grace as believers, but also through what he imparts to us by his Spirit. Imputation, impartation. Two similar words, but two significantly different words. Imputation, something that is reckoned to our account, even though, we, even though we cannot earn it, even though we do not deserve it. Impartation, something that God infuses into us, something that God actually gives us. Here where our Roman Catholic friends have become so confused in their understanding of what salvation is all about because they mix imputation and impartation together. But the New Testament clearly teases out these two strands of the work of Christ. And it reminds us that the reconstruction of our new humanity has to do with what Jesus Christ imparts to us by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is given to the people of God as the one who makes them holy in real terms. What we are forensically in terms of our new standing in the sight of God as those justified by Jesus Christ, we become really and actually through the workings of the, Lord Jesus, of the, of the Holy Spirit in our lives day by day in the outworking of our salvation. He provides the spiritual wherewithal to submit to God and to go God's way. For the first time, God can say, do this, and we'll say, yes, we will. For the first time, we can resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Because we are no longer under the dominion of sin, we are under the dominion of God. And we have the God-given power to follow and to obey. It's true for us individually and personally as Christian men and women that we have the key to our sanctification, our progress in righteousness and godliness, in the sanctifying spirit of God. But more than that, it is true, arguably far more importantly, in terms of what we are together as a church. The weight of importance that the New Testament attaches to the corporate sanctification of God's people, to the unity of God's people as living proof of his saving grace can never be underemphasized. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 21, Father, I pray that they may be one. Why? That the world may see and believe that you have sent me. If even... A fraction of the weight that Jesus attaches to that truth was to break through into our consciousness. It would, it would fill us with shame of the way that we spend so much time as Christian men and women backbiting and infighting and tearing the church apart. Christ is supremely concerned about the unity of his people because he is supremely aware that the credibility of the gospel is bound up with the oneness of the redeemed. Again, Paul says to the Ephesians, make every effort, spare no effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We could go into all kinds of, of, of different um, 
aspects of what it means for our humanity to be reconstructed through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of Christ. And, and it's, it's, it's the stuff of meditation and prayerful reflection. But here is one area that has become a dreadful casualty of the rampant individualism and the breakdown of community that we see on every side in our fallen world today. Society is fragmented and fragmenting. And the new humanity of God see not just in individual Christians but in the church as the body of Christ and the living proof of God's salvation should speak volumes to that broken world out there and say we have the key in Christ to make all things new. That brings us to the last thing. That Christ is the goal of our new humanity. Every Christian is painfully conscious of his or her own imperfections in this present world. We can easily identify with Paul's struggles as a Christian in Romans 7, culminating in that heartfelt cry, What a wretched man I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's answer to his own question provides the key. Because having asked the question, who will deliver me? He immediately responds, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's where my deliverance comes. Through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to speak of the peace and comfort and hope that he has as one whose faith is firmly in the Lord Jesus in the whole of Romans 8 and on to the end of that great epistle. Paul's point, of course, is that the whole of our redemption, past, present and future, is found in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greatest comfort in the frustrations of the present is found in the greatest truth of what the future holds, namely eternal conformity to Christ. He looks beyond the horizons of time. He looks over the edge into the future. He looks past the the last full stop in human history. He looks into the world to come and, and he looks forward to what we will be in that age to come in fellowship with our Lord and our Redeemer. But as the aging apostle, John, he throws the most significant light on this element of our salvation when he says, as was read to us earlier on, now we are the children of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, when he appears We shall be like him. We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. The very fact that John is writing as a Christian of advanced years, I think helps us to appreciate this truth even more, because here is a man who's known a lifetime of struggle in the Christian faith. Here's a man who was writing at a ripe old age, and he had known many years of, of struggle and heartache and failure as a Christian. But he was able to write with hope, with joy, with confidence, because when he appears, we shall be like him. We should never underestimate that. We should never, we must always keep the Christian life in perspective. Cornelius Van Til, who, who was still alive whenever I was at Westminster, um, and, and who was active in many ways right up to the very end, he was um, always spending time with students, and, and students would often gather around him with almost uh, an aura of hero worship. 
And one student said to him one evening over supper, Dr. Van Til, you've been a Christian all these years. You must be a very holy man. And, and he looked him in the eye and, and Van Til said, young man, he said, the older I get, the more sinful I become. And of course, what he meant by that was the, the more he grew close to Christ as a Christian, the more he realized how far he was from Christ. The more he understood what sin was. And things that as a younger man he would have overlooked as of no consequence. And as not being sin, he began to realize we're far more sinful than he had ever imagined. You see, our ultimate hope in the Christian life is not what we are in this world, but what we will be in the world to come. That ultimately the gospel is an eschatological message. It takes us beyond this present world order into what lies in the future. And we, we, we have, we've lost sight of that. All of us have lost sight of that. We are so fixated with this world. We are so obsessed with the present that we have lost sight that the gospel is all about tomorrow, the future, the eschaton. Dear old Dick Lucas, who, who is still wonderfully used by God in, in, in these years, he, he is banging that drum again and again. He's saying, my friends, listen to Paul. Listen to the preaching of the gospel. And what are they concerned about? They're not concerned about the blessings of the present. They're concerned about the eternal blessings of the future. The gospel is all about the Christ who came to abolish death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's all about the Christ who came to destroy the works of the devil. It's all about the Christ who came to bring to an end this present evil age and to usher in a new heavens and a new earth which are the home of righteousness. And even though we may denounce the prosperity gospel that is preached by so many people these days, is it not true that we have secretly imbibed so much of that gospel and we have really been looking for heaven on earth when really we're meant to be looking for heaven where God is, where Christ is, in that glorious future state? You see, here is the supreme hope for a fallen and a fractured humanity in all its dimensions. It allows us to look forward to a life of perfect restoration. If we think just for a moment about what John says, I think we can draw a few helpful insights into, into what he's talking about. Christ is the paradigm of that life to come again. It's the focus in Christ, isn't it? John wants us to, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to realize that this present order, this present world, is an imperfect world. Even as Christians, it will be an imperfect experience in this world. But he looks forward to that day. Whenever we will exchange the imperfect present for the perfect eternal future. That when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What will Jesus Christ be like when he comes back? He'll not be a child in a manger. Nor will he bear a humiliated humanity. But rather he will come in a glorified humanity, in a glorified state. He will come as the transformed Christ who appeared 
after his resurrection. He was the same Christ, but he was a different Christ in the sense that his own disciples did not immediately recognize him. Mary Magdalene, one of his closest female followers, did not at first appreciate who she was speaking to when she met him in the garden after he had been raised from the dead. But he, in his glorified state, will provide the pattern for what his people will be like. Not in the sense of their being clones of the resurrected Christ, but rather that they share in his glorified humanity. That has moral and spiritual connotations. It means that we will be free from sin, we'll be free from guilt, we'll be free from the scars of sin, we'll be free from the consequences of sin. And that's seen in all the great no-mores of heaven listed in Revelation 21. But it also has physical connotations. Because in the same way as Christ was physically transfigured, not only on the Mount of Transfiguration, but also in the transformation of the resurrection, so it will be for those who are in him by faith. That we are looking forward ultimately to complete renewal. Philippians 3 verse 21. Who by the power that enables him to, to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There is a physical future to this as well. Christians look forward to total renewal. In body as well as spirit. For you cinema lovers, it's a bit like this. You go to the cinema before you see the movie presentation. You see the coming soon trailers. And those trailers are designed to whet your appetite enough to bring you back and, and pay your money and see the next performance. Jesus Christ, in his glorified state after resurrection, is God's trailer for life in the world to come. That we see enough of Jesus in those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension into glory to have our appetites wet, to have our senses aroused at the thought of what it will be like when we leave these aging, decaying bodies of ours behind and put on a new flesh. That bears the likeness of his glorious body. Christ is not only the pattern of the life to come. He also provides the promise of the life to come. The great problem in getting a handle on the future. Is that we can never be sure about the future. We can speculate but we cannot know. We are creatures of time. We are finite in our knowledge. The only way that we can know what the future holds. Is if someone who genuinely does know the future. Chooses to reveal it to us. And John is quite candid about all of this. He acknowledges the limitations of our future knowledge. He says that there is much that has not yet been made clear. That's a fact of the Christian life as much as of life in general. It's not yet been made known. Now we see through a glass darkly. But even though all the details may not be known, it doesn't take away from the certainty of what will ultimately be. So it is in our, in relation to what the future life of God's children will be like. God has not simply given us a sneak preview of what it will be like in the, the resurrected, glorified Christ, but he has given his solemn promise in him as well. We may not be sure of all the details, but we can be sure of the overall fact 
The certainty for the future resides in the same person who has provided certainty for the present. God has proved his trustworthiness to countless generations of his people. Therefore, there is no reason for anyone to doubt what he says about tomorrow. (coughs) That has to be the most important news that the human race has ever heard. Because the entire human race, with all its diversity, shares a common end in death. And we share a common concern over what lies beyond death. Some go to extreme lengths to try and cope with this. The pharaohs of Egypt built their pyramids. Those who believe in cryogenics go to great expense to have their bodies frozen, deep frozen, in the hope that they'll be resurrected in some future occasion. And yet these hopes are always tinged with doubt, always damaged with question marks. And yet the Bible speaks with complete certainty and total confidence. Why? It's because Jesus Christ has been through the gates of death and come back again. He has conquered death. He has secured life forevermore. He alone has the warrant to speak with certainty. Why do those early disciples in the eyes of the world, becoming insane and go out there and preach the gospel to every creature. Why did they lay down their lives so willingly? Because they had come face to face with the only person in all of history who has conquered death and triumphed over the grave. And they were more than willing to lay down their lives in the service of this Christ because they knew that he would raise them up again. And he would give them an everlasting life in heaven. To enjoy. But then finally Christ encourages preparation. For the life to come. If the gospel holds out promise of certainty for the future. It stands to reason that it should make a major impact upon the present. Hence the thrust of what John says. As he explains this truth. Comes to bear upon how people use the present. To prepare for the future. Ties in with what Peter says. In 2 Peter 3, 11-14, where he, he speaks about the end of the world and, and what, will, what will be ushered in. He says, since you know these things, what kind of men ought you to be? You must live holy and righteous lives in the present. You must do everything to ensure that you are found to be at peace with him, the one who will be your judge. Same with what Jesus says in his teachings on the end times. After all his teaching about what's going to happen to Jerusalem and to the world, he says, therefore, watch And be ready. Remember once in JF Kennedy Airport in in New York, um, getting ready to come home or turning up for a flight to come home um, back to Ireland. And um, finally the the flight had been cancelled. And and, and half the passengers had been boarded on a different flight and half of us, some... 200 of us were left standing in the terminal. We were there for hours. And, and there was complete confusion. And then an official stood up and said, there will be a bus at that door and the first 30 people on that bus will get to London tonight and be home by the morning. Well, there were 200 people watching that door and there were 200 people ready to run and I was in the first 30. <laughs> The gospel doesn't say there is a bus, but the gospel says there is a person. There's a person who has been in this world and there's a person who's coming again 
to take those who trust in him home to be with him forever. So John is able to say, everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. Our future hope has present implications. What a thrilling note on which to end. You see, we live among the tattered ruins of a fallen humanity. Hopelessness is its hallmark. We are held captive to the fear of death and what lies beyond. And the gospel holds out hope to everyone. It calls on everyone to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, to look forward to his return, because those who do so will look forward to being like him as much as being with him. If we were to try and and pull together the threads of what we've been talking about this evening, I can think of no more poetic way of doing it than to quote a hymn by Graham Kendrick. He may not have been the greatest hymn writer with much that he's written, but he's written a hymn about the incarnation that is really quite incredible. Let me read it to you. Oh, what a mystery I see. What marvelous design that God should come as one of us, a son in David's line, flesh of our flesh, of woman born, our humanness he owns, and for a world of wickedness his guiltless blood atones. This perfect man, incarnate God, by selfless sacrifice destroyed our sinful history, all fallen Adam's curse. In him the curse to blessing turns, my barren spirit flowers, as o'er the shattered power of sin the cross of Jesus towers. By faith, a child of his I stand, an heir in David's line, royal descendant by his blood, destined by love's design. Fathers of faith, my father still, because in Christ I am, And all God's promises in him to me are yes, amen. No more then as a child of earth must I my lifetime spend. His history, his destiny are mine to apprehend. Oh, what a saviour, what a lord. Oh, master, brother, friend, what miracle has joined me to this life that never ends. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we do thank you. For the gift of your beloved Son. And Lord Jesus Christ, we bow in worship to thank you that you humbled yourself for us and for our salvation. And Lord Jesus, we marvel that you are the pattern of our new humanity, that you're the perfect revelation of garden of man, the perfect representation, and the perfect ruler. We thank you that you're the source of our new humanity. We thank you that in you we have the fullness of redemption. And we thank you that in you we are reconstructed. And we thank you, Lord, that you're the goal of our new humanity. That you're the pattern of the life to come. That you're the promise of that life. And we thank you that you encourage us to prepare for those great things you have in store for us. Lord Jesus, we bow in worship and in adoration. We thank you for your love that will not let us go. And we thank you for the gift and work of your spirit within. Fashion us and mould us into your image we plead. Draw us ever closer to yourself that we might be increasingly useful in your service here on earth and make us ready to adore you forever in your immediate presence in the new heavens and the new earth that you will bring into being on the last day. For this we ask in your name, to your glory. Amen. Because uh, so much territory has been covered. Are there any questions for clarification, first of all? Being an Irishman, 
He doesn't want us to be bogged down. Uh, yes, dear brother. I'd like to thank you for your inspiring, inspiring preaching. But um, some years ago, I heard Professor Dunn, the professor of New Testament at Dunn, say that uh, everything theological was eschatological. And at the end of the talk that he gave, I said, isn't everything theological, eschatological? He never gave me an answer. I wonder if you could tell me why he couldn't answer the question. <laughs> <coughs> Do you need the question again? To the... um, I'm not a, an expert on, on Professor Dunn's theology. I, I, I would, there are others here who are better equipped than I am to answer, I'm sure. My, my guess is that, that he subscribes to a, a view of theology that, that, is, um, uh, that emphasizes an over-realized eschatology that, that brings the future into the present and leaves it there. We never actually get into the future then. Um, that they... they there certainly has been a, a significant strand of theology that has recognized the, the eschatological dimension of, of um, biblical teaching, um, but has actually taken it out of the future, brought it into the present, and, and, and said that Christ has come simply to fix up this world in its present state and, and doesn't really grapple with the, 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 the supernatural reality of, of what Christ is going to usher in, usher in in a future state. There, there may be others here who could do a better job than that. But.